Okay, I am super excited to get to talk to you guys today about Titus 1, 5 through 16. Um, so I'm just going to, I know Alyssa already opened our whole time in prayer, but I'm just going to go ahead and open this time in prayer as well because we can never have too much prayer. So, <laughs> dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can just come um, into your word to dive deeper into the things that you've taught us um, through Paul and through Titus. I pray that you just open up the text, open up our hearts, um, allow us to glean what you want us to today, allow us to pick out the parts that you have in mind for us to learn um, at this specific time and place, Lord, and um, just allow us to be open to what the Spirit has to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, um, my name's Clarissa, I think I know all of you, um, but I'm really excited to be talking to you guys today. I'm going to try really hard to not look down at my notes too much, but I am notorious for writing a whole bunch of great notes and then skipping all of them and making it like a five-minute talk. So I probably am going to look down some just so that I don't do that. Okay, so first we're going to review what we talked about last week. Um, and what we talked about last week and what we talked about with our bookmark and Woman in the Word is um, context, how important context is. So who? Paul was the author of Titus. Um, there's actually disagreement about scholars about who the author was, even though it says at the beginning that Paul was the one that wrote it. None of this disagreement among scholars has any substantial evidence, but there are people out there who think that Paul wasn't the author. Um, so it's important to know that people could say, well, Paul wasn't really the author of that, like what proof do you have? Um, there's lots of evidence that shows that Paul was the author in the time period in which he wrote it, which is when? A.D. 62 to 64 is about the time that he probably wrote Titus. Um, Paul was imprisoned at one point. I'm sure everyone knows that Paul was in prison, twice actually. Um, he went to prison the first time. He got out. He traveled around, shared the good news. Um, during those travels, he left Timothy in Ephesus, and he left Titus in Crete. And it was after he left both of them that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Um, he was then imprisoned again, and then that's when he wrote 2 Timothy. So it was in that in-between time, in between dropping them off and being in prison the second time, that he wrote Titus. Um, and again, that's about 62 to 64 AD, which is only about 30 years after the resurrection. So people are still alive who were there during the time of Jesus being on earth. Um, who is it written to? It's written to Titus clearly the letter, the name of the book. Um, Titus is described as a brother of Paul, a partner, a co-worker, and he was left in Crete to further the gospel. What style is it written in? It's a letter. Specifically, it's one of the pastoral epistles, also called the pastoral letters. Um, and these include 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, and they are letters that Paul wrote to co-workers. Um, those three, along with Philemon, are the only letters in the New Testament that are written specifically to individuals instead of to churches at large. So they obviously have a little bit of different style, because even though Paul knew they were going to be read to people, they're going to be used, they're still written to an individual. Um, if I'm writing a letter to someone, if I'm writing a letter to Trey, there's a lot of background information that I'm not going to have to tell her, because I know she already knows it. I'm not writing to the full scope. So because of that, when we read these letters, there's a lot of information that's packed into tight spaces that we have to put all that context in of things that Paul would have known that Titus already knew. Um, and then finally, the why. So why was it written? Paul's writing to Titus. Um, he's personal communication. He's writing to a friend. He's writing to a coworker, someone that he cares about. He's giving teachings and exhortation to encourage him. Um, and he's giving instructions in the ministry and how to start the church. We are at the beginnings of the early church here. Everyone is learning what works, what doesn't work, 
we're still learning those things. Um, and they were in the trial and error stage. So he is teaching them what's working um, and what to do next. Um, so it's really important to look at context, not just the context of writing, but the context of where we're reading from. So when you start reading the Bible, you are bringing your own preconceived notions, your own biases. It is impossible to get rid of all of those. But it's really important, especially in these letters from Paul, to try to wipe as much of that away as possible. That when you're reading, you're reading purely from what the text says before you're bringing forward what you have to say about it. Um, If we come to a text and our first instinct is to make it about ourselves before understanding what it says, then it's about pride and not about God. Um, So coming into this, we want to wipe everything else away. I know you guys have been studying Titus all week, so you already have it in your minds. Um, But wipe as much as we can away of ourselves so that we can really glean what God is saying in the letter. So before we start, I have a little bit of a preamble that's not about Titus, um, but it is about studying scripture and studying doctrine. So doctrine can be kind of separated into different levels. And there's different people that um, have different levels of what they call these levels or how many levels they choose to put it in. Um, But it's a separation of kind of importance of doctrine. So the easiest way that I personally have to look at these is seeing them as first order, second order, and third order doctrines. Um, People would also call these absolutes, convictions, and opinions. So first order, absolutes. These are things that cannot be denied and still call yourself a Christian. Um, They deal with the nature of God, the atonement, the method of salvation, and they're what separates religions. So, for example, if I'm talking to Alyssa, and Alyssa says that Jesus was a good teacher, but he's not God. Even if she says she's a Christian, she's not. That is a difference of a first order doctrine. Um, And if we do not agree on that, we are not the same religion. Second order is convictions. They're not stated explicitly in scripture. They don't necessarily tell us exactly what to do. Um, There are things that Bible believing Christians disagree on, but they're significant enough that they create boundaries. That's usually what creates denominations. So these would be things such as I'm going to pick on Alyssa more because she won't mind if I pick on her. Um, If Alyssa said that she's not going to go to a church unless they believe in infant baptism, she's not going to go to a Baptist church. We can still agree that Jesus is the son of God. We can still agree that Jesus died on the cross. We can still agree that we are sisters in Christ. But that is a fundamental difference that we are not going to be part of the same denomination. Um, Finally, we've got third order, which is opinions. These are things that Christians disagree on, but they can still remain close in fellowship, possibly even in the same church, possibly different churches in the the same denomination. So again, Alyssa um, really prefers worship that is piano and hymns only. I really prefer worship that is projector and guitar only. (laughs) We have all the same beliefs. We have all the same convictions. We are not going to disagree on anything that's fundamental to doctrine, but because of those different opinions, we might not be comfortable being at the same church because it's not where we're called to be. That's okay. So why am I bringing this up? This has nothing to do with Titus, right? Well, there are things in this text, um, in particular these verses at the beginning, that Christians disagree about. Um, Probably some people in this room are going to disagree about and not realize you disagree about something that seems so simple in how it's worded. And that's okay. Um, Some of the things we're going to talk about, I'm going to mention some of the different positions that people have. Some of them might be first order, some of them might be second order, and some of them might be third order. 
but I think it can be really helpful when we're talking about really difficult conversations to recognize if you're struggling with something, if you're disagreeing with something, is this something that's an opinion, a conviction, or an absolute? Like, are we disagreeing about the gospel or are we disagreeing about the color of the carpet? Um, And sometimes it's hard to tell where those fall and people might have different opinions on how important an issue is, but evaluating where that is helps you to know what you already have in common with the people that you're talking about and making sure that we remember um, who our brothers and sisters are. So now on to Titus. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read Titus so that we have it in top of mind. Um, It should be in your books or it's on the screen. Um, And we are going to start in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the faith, from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, so why? Verse 5, right from the top. Why did Paul leave Titus behind? He left him behind to finish the work that was left undone and to fix the problems that were already started. Um, We're going to talk about the problems that have already started in the second half, um, but finish the work that's left to be done, and that is to appoint elders. So what is an elder? Um, Paul treats leadership as a secondary secondary to the gospel. His letters are full with specifics on exactly what the gospel means, on exactly what atonement means, on exactly how we are saved by grace through faith alone. Um, He gives a lot less detail about leadership, and it makes it a lot harder for us to interpret exactly how the church is supposed to be run. I think that gives us freedom, that it's okay for different churches to have slightly different leadership structures and be okay. One of those things is what the word elder, overseer, pastor is. Um, But it's really important for you to know how your church uses it and that other churches might use it differently. Um, For example, some churches use the word pastor to mean teacher, that they're the head teacher of the church. Some people, some churches mean it to use CEO, that they run the business of the church. They run the staff. Um, They might never actually teach and they're the lead pastor. Um, And some use elder to mean the committee that's in charge of the church, the trustees, the people that are in charge of the decisions, but never actually preach. 
That is not how we use it at TCC. Um, Michael's talked about in sermons, and if you ask him, he will tell you, um, that elder, pastor, and overseer, as we see it in scripture, are used interchangeably and are all synonymous. Um, And one really good example of where these are all brought together, and one of the reasons why we believe these are interchangeable, is in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. It says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd, which is a pastor, God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion. So we see we have elders shepherding and don't oversee out of compulsion. We have all three words being described of the same leader in the church. Um, So that's why at TCC, we use the same word to describe the different people. Um, So Michael will say that Michael, Chris, and Mike are all our pastors and our elders. Um, So when you hear one described as another, it might be confusing if you've been to a church where those are different roles and different offices, um, but they're used interchangeably. Um, So why would we have different terms in the Bible? Why did Paul just use the same thing every time he was talking about a leader? Um, And one difference is that elders is used in a time when he's focusing on the dignity and character and being respected in the community, and overseer and pastor are being used when he's talking about a specific office, Um, that the actual position within the church is overseer or pastor, but the respect and the level in the community is the elder. So while they are interchangeable, he uses them slightly different depending on when he's talking about them. Um, And in this case, we're talking about elders. So qualifications to be an elder, um, we're going to start in verse 6. Um, So blameless. Blameless does not mean perfect, um, but redeemed and repentant. And the way that he's using blameless here is similar to how it's used in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, which is once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So in the same way that we are redeemed, through Christ, that is the requirement of blamelessness that he's putting here. It's not that someone is perfect. It is that someone is redeemed and is repentant with their sin, that there is an outflowing in their life of a um, redeemed life. So they have to be born again, you could say here. Um, Next, husband of one wife. Now this is one that sparks a lot of debate and is one of the reasons why I brought up previously um, that we might have some disagreement. So most clear that most people can agree upon in this is that faithfulness in marriage or purity in relationships. That's pretty basic. We can all agree there. Um, Some of the things that get a little bit more tricky that have questions arise is, does this mean that someone who's been divorced cannot be an elder or a pastor? Um, This is a disagreement between different churches. And even different churches within the same denomination would say different things. And some churches might not even know what their church's stance is until it arises and it comes up as a possibility. Um, So there's no cut and dry answer in scripture. Um, Michael's preached previously when he preached on these verses um, that he thinks it's a case-by-case basis and that there are cases in the Bible where it talks about biblical reasons for divorce. There are cases where we think that um, a person after being divorced could be redeemed from that. Um, But then there's other cases where this would disqualify someone from eldership or leadership. 
So it's something that would have to be um, critically looked at by the leadership and by the church itself to decide if that's something that in that case would disqualify them from eldership. Another hard question that comes from this is, does an elder have to be married? If they um, have to be a husband of one wife, does that require being married? Um, While some people make this argument, it doesn't say must have to have a wife. Um, It says of one wife. And actually, this would disqualify Paul and Titus as elders if marriage was required. Um, So if you bring together other verses and the people who are actually elders and leaders in the church, um, then that does not qualify as one of the possibilities for how this could be taken. Next, does this mean that only a man can be an elder or a pastor? Um, There are two different stances on this within Christianity. So there's egalitarianism, I'm going to use some real big words here, and complementarianism. So complementarians believe that men and women were created differently, um, unique from one another, but with absolute equal value. Um, God created our differences to complement one another and to work together um, to further his glory. Men and women are not interchangeable but are created with specific purpose. Uh, They would say that this verse, along with others, make it clear that the office of pastor and elder is to be filled by men, not because women are less than men, not because this is a position of power or importance that is saved for the better, higher sex, but because we have been um, created for different reasons. And for whatever reason, God has chosen that this is a position that men will fill. Egalitarians believe that men and women, while physically different, are equal in every other way, um, including the roles that they serve within the church. They would say that verses like this, either Paul was just using the word man to mean all humans, um, or it's a cultural difference that is not a biblical mandate. So there are Christian churches that fall into both of these categories, um, and we have brothers and sisters that believe both sides of this. And there's a whole host of other tiny complications within this conversation that it could be a whole Bible study within itself. Um, But the basic filling this into a tiny part about elder qualifications, um, the Southern Baptist Convention, also known as the Great Commission Baptist, which is what TCC is a part of, is a complementarian stance. Um, So we do believe that pastors and elders can only be filled um, by men. And I or Alyssa or anyone on staff would love to have further conversations since this is a longer conversation than this short. Um, So if you have any questions about what that means or why we lean that direction or what um, implications that has in other ways, obviously we have a woman on staff. So what does that mean? Um, We would love to talk to you longer than the 20 minutes I have to talk about this. Um, Some resources that Michael's recommended are 40 questions on elders and deacons by Benjamin Merkel. And um, if you look up online, Jen Wilkin, who wrote our lovely book that we use for studying scripture, um, she's talked on Acts 29 and has some great videos online where she talks about women's leadership in the church. Okay, finally, from verse 9, we have having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. Um, And this is one where, to me, it helps to look at multiple translations because it could be confusing. On the surface, it might look like in some translations, it means that all of a pastor's children's have to be believers. Um, That gets kind of tricky. What if they have a new child and they haven't been baptized yet? How can you force someone to be a believer? You can't actually force someone to be a believer. What age is it required for the elder's kids to be baptized? Um, Again, can't be a requirement. 
Um, but if you look at different translations together and the overall um, verses that talk about this qualification, what it really means is that um, faithful parenting and that the elder is faithfully parenting their children in the direction that they should be going um, and that their children respect them in their position as parents. Um, it does not mean for the rest of the kids' lives outside of the house that they're going to follow the teachings of their parents. It means that as they're in their house, um, they respect their parents and they have followed the trajectory that their parents have led them down. Um, Basically, if you can't guide your own household and you can't help the people that are in your own household, how can you be trusted to help guide a whole church congregation um, is where this qualification is coming down to. So now we get to verse 7 and 8. Again, it starts with blameless. Um, bringing this up twice, I feel like, is Paul just punching it home. They must be redeemed. Um, you cannot be an elder if you are not born again. You cannot be an elder if you are not repentant of sins. Um, okay, now we've got charismatic, strong speaking ability, wealthy, someone respected. Yeah, this is what it says. No, these are not what it says. Um, in any other community outside of a church, this is who you'd be looking for to be your leader and to be your CEO. You would want the animatic speaker. You'd want the person that can bring in millions. Um, but these are not the ideas that Paul has for our leaders. Um, Paul wants us to choose people that are not arrogant, that are not hot tempered that are not addicted to wine. Um, and notice it doesn't say doesn't drink wine, specifically not addicted to or overindulging in wine. They are not a bully. They are not greedy for money. They are hospitable. They are loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, and they are self-controlled. These are just about the opposite of our CEOs of America. Um, many of these are seen as positive things in most leadership roles. But in the church, we are looking for the opposite. We are not looking for the people that are going to command a room with their voice. We are looking for the people that are going to care about the people in the room, um, that are not going to be overwhelmed by money, that are not going to be overwhelmed by needing to be in control. Probably they're not even the people who want to be in control, but they're the people who are steadfast enough to be able to put the gospel above all other things, including their own pride. And the final qualification, and the one that Paul focuses on the most um, by his holding it until last and doubling down on its explanation is that they are holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So basically, this is the only one that is an ability and an action, not a character trait. Um, and it is that they are able to stand strong in the word and rebuke those who go against it. Sorry, just lost my place. Got really excited about this one. Um, so, uh, yeah, out of this whole list, this is the only ability and role. Um, and it's so important to teach sound teachings and correct false teachings. So the why of this whole section is to teach sound teaching and correct false teachings. And this is where we get into the why do we need elders? So Paul has taken this time saying, Titus, you need to appoint elders. These are the elders you need to appoint. This is why we need to appoint them. Um, so Paul literally just went through this area. We talked about he went on a mission. He's going to all these different countries, spreading the gospel, telling people the good news. And there are literally people coming right behind him and distorting what he has to say. 
Um, so this would be like if Billy Graham did a revival. I realize Billy Graham's not doing any more revivals, but if Billy Graham was still with us and he did a revival and he comes into town and he preaches the word and thousands of people are saved. And then the next week, a different group comes in and says, hey, guys, I know you thought you were saved. That was really awesome what you did the last week. By the way, in order to actually be saved, now you have to be circumcised. That's not a big deal, is it? Probably a big deal. Not a big deal to anyone in this room, but like <laughs> probably some guys think this is a pretty big deal. Um, so in the New Testament, we can see letters that Paul has written to churches correcting these false doctrines and um, distortions of the gospel. And here in the pastoral epistles, both to Timothy and to Titus, he's telling them, hey, we've got to appoint some people to keep this from happening. Like we keep losing, we tell these churches what to do. We tell them the gospel. They are saved. They believe in Jesus. We walk away for five minutes and suddenly they're worshiping idols. Like we need some people there that are going to stick to the gospel. Their only job is to make sure that the false teachers that come in are not going to be distorting the gospel. Um, so what are some of these distortions that were prevalent even then and are still prevalent today? Um, so first of all, making it about performance. So um, we talked about, and Alyssa mentioned, which, by the way, I love a question before a teaching of what do you want to be in this teaching? Because I'm like, yes, I'll add that. I'll add that. So talking about circumcision, the circumcision party, um, they were Judaizers, which are people who are trying to convince people who were become Christians that they actually needed to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They actually needed to follow the Jewish law, that following Jesus was in addition to Jewish law. So if you became a Christian, you got to go all the way back. We all know that's not true. Um, but new believers are easily lied to. Um, another group that was going around the same time is the Gnostics. Um, and the Judaizers and the Gnostics were a very similar idea and sometimes the same group. Um, and the Gnostics believed and taught that you were only saved in your mind and that the body is evil and inherently evil and really doesn't matter at all. It's all about your mind. So rather than redemption, they preach the need for enlightenment. That if you're knowledgeable enough, that all you need to do is know enough about God and you're good. Physical doesn't matter because the body, that's old news. It's all about the mind. Um, and these are both distortions and both about your own performance. That if you learn enough, if you do enough, if you follow enough rules, you can get to heaven. You plus Jesus equals heaven. And it turns out when you add anything to Jesus, it's no longer the gospel. Um, so the best way to overwhelm someone is to tell them that they have to do anything in addition to the gospel, um, because there's no way that we are ever going to be able to do that enough. Um, the next is to rearrange the priorities. So we talked about earlier the different levels of doctrine. When people switch and make the gospel a third order issue and make what color the carpet is a first order issue, we're distorting the gospel. We are putting Jesus below minor things. Even if it could be important doctrine, if we are switching the gospel with second level, we are still distorting the gospel and putting Jesus in an improper place. Um, and then finally, making it about our prosperity. Um, so Paul talks about in Titus, greed of money. Um, and I'm sure we've all heard about the prosperity gospel, which is basically, if you serve God, he will serve you. Um, the end result is God giving you what you need. Um, some good ways that John Piper talks about to recognize the prosperity gospel is for one, it leaves no room to talk about suffering. Um, because if you suffer in the prosperity gospel, it means it's your fault. Um, because if you were really doing what God's will was, you wouldn't be suffering. 
there's a lack of wrestling with tensions in the Bible. If you are following the prosperity gospel, you get to pick whichever side you want. Whichever side serves you better, that's the one that you're going to choose. You're never going to disagree with anything. You're never going to have a hard time with anything. Um, There's no evaluation of hearts because everything is about you and whatever you desire must be right. So God's going to give you what you desire. Um, And if there is a gospel that is about you and what God can do for you, then it's not the gospel. And sometimes that even means um, that it's about what God wants to do with you. Um, If your service of God is about you, then it's not the gospel. I know I just said not the gospel a whole bunch of times, um, but we like to add things to the gospel, and anything added is not the gospel. Um, So finally, why does this matter for us? So Paul is telling Titus, make elders. Here's what elders are. Here's why you need elders. What does it mean today? Um, So when we're evaluating leadership and who to put trust in to preserve the preaching of the gospel, we have a rubric in Titus. We can look to this list and see what we need to be looking for and what strengths we need to be looking for on who to choose to put our trust in. Healthy churches are not just the responsibility of um, those with official positions in the church. It's the responsibility of every single person in the church. So if you're moving to a new area and you're looking for a church to attend, I hope none of you ever move away. But if you do, one person already has, um, but we're glad she's back. Um, That means when you attend that church, you're not just looking for friends. You're evaluating the people that they've entrusted with leadership and making sure that they line up with these qualifications. Um, For us as a church plant, we're still creating our leadership. We're seeing what that leadership's going to look like in the long run. Um, And that means we're appointing leaders and elders right now. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we went through a vote where we voted in Mike Luganville as one of our elders slash pastors. Um, And that wasn't just a popularity contest. It wasn't a random piece of paper that says like, do we like talking to Mike? Yes. Um, It was an evaluation of his leadership qualities. It was going through the list in Titus and seeing do what we see in Mike line up with these qualifications and will he be someone that can support the gospel teach encouragement through the gospel, and rebuke when these negative false teachings try to attack us. Um, And Alyssa's going to talk about next week that this doesn't only apply to leadership, um, but as mentors, mentees, like people around us, um, I won't steal her thunder for the verses that are upcoming, um, but (laughs) these are um, a rubric that we can use for these different things. And um, as Trey said earlier, rebuking is hard. Standing firm in the faith is a difficult thing, and finding where the lines are drawn on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not is difficult and challenging, and we need to make sure that we're choosing people who are going to stay firm in those lines, that we trust to stay firm in those lines, and that we trust are listening to God when it comes to those issues. Um, so I am going to close this prayer really fast before I talk about the discussion questions. Um, I didn't talk quite as fast as I thought I did. So I'm really proud of myself. And I'm sorry that I talk really fast because that's what I do. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had to spend in Titus. Um, I pray that you um, just work through us as we work through these qualifications, Lord. Um, Help us to see how you want us to use these in our church um, and in our home and um, to just create the church that you want us to make, Lord. You've blessed us with a new space um, and new opportunities and a new elder and just allow us to continue to flourish and grow. Jesus, I pray. Amen.
So on your table, um, you can flip over the piece of paper now. I put it upside down because I didn't want it to be a distraction. I didn't think anyone would notice and immediately three people asked why they were upside down. <laughs> um, so there's a list of questions. These are really um, just goals and jumping off points. So I would love, um, and Alyssa can come up, are you gonna talk about the discussion questions or do you want me to jump into it? Okay, um, so if you can look with your table, you can either go into another room if you want a little bit more space to talk. Um, if you wanna grab some another cookie and a drink before you start talking, go to the bathroom, we have a couple minutes. Um, we have lots of time to talk about the discussion questions today. So you can take your time, pick your room. Um, and these questions are really a chance for you to jump around between them. If you wanna do them in a different order, that's fine. If you wanna go straight through the questions and answer them and spend more time praying together, that's fine too. If you wanna spend the whole time focusing on one question because that's what's important to your group, that's fine too. We really want these to be an opportunity um, to foster discussion in your group. So. Well, um, 